So as I shared uh, this morning, we are working through a two-part series uh, this Sunday on prayer, the reasons for prayer and the reasons maybe why we don't pray. And I want to, in connection to that, um, look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. This, this again, is a topical sermon, so we're going to be touching various uh, scripture passages. But I want to touch upon 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Of course, it's in the Old Testament after Kings. Uh, It's the dedication of the temple. And after the temple was dedicated, the temple temple that Solomon built, uh, the Lord met uh, Solomon uh, at night and uh, spoke a a word um, for Solomon, but for his people of all ages. Uh, We'll begin in uh, verse, uh, verse 11, and we'll read just to verse 16. There we find the word of the Lord. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to destroy or devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Well, in connection to 2 Chronicles, I want to actually now move into the New Testament church, uh, into Acts and find, I guess you could say, one of the most extreme examples of um, a prayerless Christian, if they could be called Christians, uh, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Some of you are familiar with that story. Um, If you aren't, you'll hear about it very shortly. Uh, This is the early church. In fact, they are seemingly at the temple or close to it at this time. We're not quite sure exactly where they are. But they they sinned against the Lord, and and we're going to find out the consequence of that sin for the church. Acts chapter 5, verse 1 reads, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back? part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, it was, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. But Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. 
Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. Loved ones in our Lord Jesus Christ, as you were here maybe this morning, you learned with us or with me that as you work through the book of Acts, a prayer has a dominant theme uh, in that book. One of the phrases that I used this morning is, it was that the people in the early church, it seemed, were spirit-filled, a spirit-filled people on their knees. Acts is like a prayer journal, and the Lord answering prayer after prayer after prayer. And if you were to ask the members of the early church about the importance of prayer, I think they would say prayer is our lifeline. We can't imagine not being able to constantly communicate with our Lord um, through prayer. And I think Acts provides us a few examples of the reasons why the church is called to pray. I gave those to you this morning, but if you're not here, here it is again. We are utterly dependent upon God's mercy, the church is. Uh, we should delight to honor God's purposes, even if they're difficult for us to understand. We are in need of particular help at sometimes that, uh, that we confront the impossible and we need the Lord to help us. And we long for the gospel to take root in the lives of those who do not know him yet. And for, these are some of the things that we find in the book of Acts. And they were actively in prayer over those matters. But what I want to do this afternoon is ask this question what keeps the church from prayer? And, I, and when I speak about the church, I'm speaking about us individually. We make up the body of Christ. What keeps us from prayer? There are hindrances, roadblocks, you could say, stumbling blocks even, that, that keep us from prayer. And, and what's worse than that, they keep God, you could put, to put it very boldly, from actually hearing our prayers. It's not a one-sided transaction, you could say. Whether we are captivated by the things of this world, which is idolatry, or have an unforgiving spirit towards others, maybe we're just spiritually lazy and find prayer to be quite inconvenient, there are many reasons why we may not be following in the footsteps of our forefathers and foreparents in the book of Acts with our prayer life. And we're going to address that this afternoon. If you Google uh, hindrances to prayer, You'll find many um, responses to that, because I did. And I could easily compile a list of about 25 things that keep us from prayer. That's, that's what I found on, on good and friendly Google. Um, but for your sake, I've only narrowed it down to five. So, so we'll have time to work through those five. Five hindrances uh, to prayer. We're going to address them uh, together this afternoon very briefly uh, but they're very important for our prayer, our spiritual life. The first one is, is a very direct one, and I hope it, none of you fall in this category, but the first one is a lack of faith. A lack of faith. 
The reason some people's hearts and mouths may be closed to prayer and possibly the greatest actually hindrance to prayer is faithlessness, not having faith in the Almighty. The author to Hebrews puts it very, very clearly, Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. I do not suggest for a moment that there's a great challenge here. You're in, in some ways, a great contest for your faith. These are desperately trying times for the Christian, particularly actually in the West. Our faith is being challenged, it's being ridiculed, it's being mocked by many, maybe even friends of yours. And you know, and I know, deconversion stories, which they, what they call deconversion stories, stories of children who have grown up in the faith, who have left the faith. These are deconversion stories, and they continue to rise. And atheism is the landing strip for many of those who deconvert. It's not that they're moving between other faiths, they're simply denying any existence of God. And I understand the struggle. I've been in those conversations many times. But it's interesting if you read the, the, the storyline of Scripture, if you read the Bible, that, that there is no excuse actually given. There's no pampering to those who give up the faith. Thomas, as you know, one of the disciples of Jesus after Jesus rose from the dead, was not there at the first meeting on the Sunday evening when he arose. And, and he said these words, he said in John 20, verse 27, unless I see this, sorry, unless I see his wounds with my eyes, Unless I put my finger in his, his hand, I, I won't believe. I will not believe. So what does Jesus do with Thomas the next time Jesus sees Thomas in the upper room? He doesn't say, oh, now, now, Thomas, I understand why you would doubt. No, he says, Thomas, feel these. Put your hand right here. These are my wounds for you. Stop doubting and believe. Have faith. He says to the church this afternoon, have faith. Yes, the battle may be great. Satan wants to eat your faith for breakfast. But there's still no reason to doubt. There isn't. This, this is the gospel. Jesus came in the flesh. He lived among us. He died our death on the cross. He rose victoriously. He appeared to 500 people. Then he ascended. And history attests to this reality with 6,000 extant or active manuscripts stating the story of his life on earth. Jesus saves. That's the story and it's true. Stop doubting. James, a brother of Jesus, half-brother, says in James 1 verse 6, he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubt is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Talk about a hindrance to prayer life. If you doubt, you won't receive from the Lord. Lord, help us when our faith is weak. The lack of faith, that's one hindrance. Here's the second the second um, hindrance to faith, to, sorry, to, to prayer, the second hindrance to prayer is nurturing sin or un leaving sin unconfessed in your life. It's a great roadblock to the Almighty. Someone wrote, sin sucks the desire for prayer out of me. 
Sin literally sucks the desire for prayer out of me, and I think all of you would agree. If we seek to hide sin in our hearts and keep things hidden so that others and even the Almighty does, doesn't know, though he does, it, it, it will grow. And as it grows, it will produce death. And this death is a, is a separation from you and your God. That's what sin does. It continues to drive a wedge in the relationship between you and your Father. That's the first thing it does. Second, if we cherish sin in our hearts, the Lord's ears are closed to our prayers. That's a hard truth for us to understand. If we cherish sin in our hearts, the Lord closes his ears to our prayers. It says in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. James picks up again this theme in James 4, verse 2. He says, you covet because you do not get what you want. You quarrel, you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you're asking with the wrong motives that you may spend what you have on your own pleasures. You're just nurturing sin. You want your cake, and you want to eat it. You want to nurture sin, and you want the Lord to hear your prayers and answer them. The Puritan, Thomas Watson, put it like this. He says, by delaying repentance, sin strengthens and the heart burdens. He says, the longer ice freezes, and I know it's pretty warm out there today, but the longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. The longer we live, let sin resonate in our hearts and do not repent, the harder it is for that to break. It's interesting, when the Lord comes to Solomon, so are we really just moving through Scripture very quickly here, but Solomon now, back in the Old Testament, son of David, when he, after Solomon has this beautiful dedication, killing 1,000, 10,000 cows, I don't know, lots of them, blood literally ro rolling, streaming down the, the streets of Jerusalem, I'm sure, because of their sin, because they wanted to have a right relationship with God, God says to him, if my people who are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that then, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. There's a crippling reality in someone's prayer life when they're living with unrepentant sin. I'll just tell you, it's real. It's very real. But there's another side to the confession of sin because I don't think we should leave it there. That, and that's this, that when we do confess our sins, we need to believe in, their, in its deliverance, in its, re, in its forgiveness. I say that because we have experienced, maybe you've experienced in your life a season of sin, a season of living and harboring a sin. Maybe you're in that right, right now. Nobody knows but the Almighty. And the Lord's calling you out today, and He's seeking your heart of repentance. He delights in your repentance and so you repent. You call it out and in repentance and in confession of that sin, the Lord hears that prayer and you need to believe because this is also true that, that he doesn't bar the entrance into eternity because of that sin. He forgives that sin and he hears your prayer. The lie to think that there's a sin that keeps you from the Almighty is a lie from the pit of hell. There is no sin 
that you can't confess. There is no sin that you can't turn away from. There is no sin that you can't repent of. There is no sin, once you do that, that will remain unforgiven. John, one of the disciples, says, if we, comp- if we claim to be without sin, I read that this morning, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we repent from our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the finished work of Christ on our behalf, that when we confess our sins, our, our slate is clean. If we don't confess, the Lord doesn't hear our prayers. That's what the Bible says. That's the second. Here's the third. That's nurturing unconfessed sins, a lack of faith, nurturing unconfessed sins. Here's the third, a divided heart. The third hindrance to our prayer life is not only a lack of faith, which is a serious one, uh, or unconfessed sin, it's, it's a divided heart. A divided heart is very similar, actually, to unconfessed sin. But it takes us, you could say, to the source of the unconfessed sin. The reason why we're not confessing a particular sin is because we've grown to cherish it, because our hearts are divided. This is what we call, or Bible calls, idolatry. Matthew 6, verse 24, this is is from Jesus. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Divided heart is a double-minded heart, or a double-minded mind, you could say. A divided heart is a heart that claims to say, I follow Christ, but, and I want all the benefits of knowing Christ as my Lord and Savior, but living in active disobedience by cherishing something more than him. And I think if you were to, and, and, so we're not going to exegete Acts chapter 5, I'm sorry, but if you were to be there during the time of the, of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and you were to ask Peter, what really happened? What really happened here? Why, why did they die? I think the answer would be maybe quite extensive. There would be various points that he would want to raise. But if he was to break it down very simply, their hearts were divided. They were members of the early church. They had watched a, a gentleman named Uh, Barnabas sell his property and give it to the Lord and they're like that's great we're going to do the same thing honey but what they didn't do is confess their allegiance to the Lord fully they were cherishing sin in their hearts their hearts were divided they wanted the benefits of being part of the church of Jesus Christ but they also wanted the benefits of the fame of the reputation and possibly the money that came from this sale if we sell give hold back a little bit but give the rest to the lord uh, people will have a high put us in high honor will maybe even be mentioned in the bible they were but what if ananias and sapphira didn't have this idol, the idol of fame, of being recognized in the church, a love for money. What if their hearts weren't greedy? What if Ananias and Sapphira, after they sold the property, bent down like their brothers and sisters were doing in the church and prayed? 
and said to the Lord, this is yours. Everything I have belongs to you. How do you want us to use these funds? What if they had devoted it all to the Lord? And the Lord, in his ways, may have given, left them have some of it back. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that their hearts were completely divided. They listened to the lie of the devil. A divided heart is a great hindrance to our prayer life. And the Lord does not delight in a divided heart. That's the third hindrance. Here's the fourth hindrance. These are all pretty heavy, I get it, because it's that important. Here's the fourth hindrance to a, to a, to a prayer life. It's an unforgiving spirit. An unforgiving spirit. It's a cold, unforgiving spirit. It's a great hindrance to our prayer life. Jesus says this in Mark 11, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, whenever you stand praying, he says, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses, work it out, be reconciled, forgive each other so that your prayers are not hindered. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. So important is this that Jesus put this into the Lord's prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. You see, if we live with a bitter and unforgiving spirit, loved ones, your prayers and our prayers will be hindered. I don't know if you have that spirit with you this afternoon against a brother or sister in the church. You need to confess that sin. You say, but they've wronged me. You need to confess that sin. There is no place in the economy of God's salvation for a bitter, unforgiving spirit. We who have been forgiven so much are called by Christ to be forgiving to those who sin against us. Now I know I don't have time to unpack the whole theology of forgiveness this afternoon. It's deep. But I want to stress this. I want to stress the spiritual nature of forgiveness. Just a reminder. For some of you, you will say, I have been wronged. And the person who has wronged me has not repented. Must I forgive so-and-so who has not repented, who has not repented? And are my prayers, are my prayers being hindered because of this reality? Well, Scripture does not enjoin, it does not call us to tell someone they are forgiven when they have not asked for forgiveness. You'll never find that in Scripture, where you're called to forgive someone when they have simply not asked for it. But listen, your heart, loved ones, can become very thorny, very bitter, quickly, if you do not have a forgiving spirit still. That thorny heart can steal your joy. That thorny heart of, of frustration can, can steal your prayer life. You see, what we are called to do as followers of Christ is to have a disposition of forgiveness. So even though they do not ask for forgiveness and the relationship may not ultimately be reconciled, you, you do not walk around with a bitter spirit. You do not walk around with an unforgiving spirit. In your heart, you forgive them. Lord, he did not know what he was doing or she did not know what she was doing or even if they did, they sinned against me. But I in my heart will forgive them. You walk around with a forgiving spirit 
to protect yourself, to protect your prayer life. When we hold people's sin against them, our heart has no place for the joy of Christ in us. He has forgiven much. We, must, we have to have a spirit of forgiveness. And we pray for the opportunity for reconciliation to happen. We pray for the opportunity when that person who has wronged us repents of their sin and we say, yes, in my heart I've always forgiven you, but thank you, because now the relationship can be restored. You understand, of course, that Jesus was a man of prayer. And on the cross, he says, Lord, forgive them. They didn't ask for forgiveness, but his heart was soft towards them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. We don't know if Stephen was there, Stephen the deacon was there, but the Stephen understood this so well. He's the first martyr that we know of in the New Testament. Even as he was being stoned to death, probably being ripped from his family, from his children, certainly from his friends, from the community of believers, as he was mobbed and stoned, he had a heart full of grace and forgiveness. And he turns to the Lord, he says, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And then he dies. He didn't die full of anger and bitterness towards his enemies, to those who opposed him. He died with a gentle, kind, forgiving spirit. And his prayers, even to the end, were not hindered. He was given a picture of heaven's door, or heaven's throne room, the throne room of God. That's the, that's the fourth. Here's the fifth. An, un, un, an unforgiving spirit is, is, is a great hindrance to prayer life. Here's the, here's the last one. It's inconvenience. <laughs> This is maybe where we fall generally in, this, in the hindrances to prayer, to our prayer life. We call it spiritual laziness. Or we're just too busy to pray. This is a great hindrance for the church of Jesus Christ. It's on a different category than the, some of the other ones that I mentioned. And in fact, you could say that all of these hindrances to prayer don't stand alone. They're all somewhat interconnected. Because some of our spiritual laziness is connected to idolatry. To a divided heart. But being inconvenienced is seeing the things of God less important than our personal satisfaction and the supplying of our temporal needs. I'll say that again. Often being inconvenienced to the things that belong to God in our spiritual life is because we see that our personal satisfaction is more important than the things that belong to God. And we begin to believe that gathering for prayer or even individual prayers is not worth its time. Because we can't see an immediate result on the prayer. So we say, well, why, why would I waste my time? But I'm not going to see some benefit from this time of prayer. And, 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 and to add you know, injury to that, we live in a culture, especially here in the West, I'm continuing saying that, but I, I've lived in two different worlds, so I've kind of seen it. But we live in a culture where we have instant gratification. If we want to be gratified in this culture, whatever the gratification might be, we can do it. We can be gratified quite quickly by this device or not. But everything's instant. Uber's instant. Uh, do you have Uber all the way up here? Just kidding. Everything is the now. 
And the God of convenience has ordered our days so that our prayer life is like a ship drifting aimlessly on the sea of convenience. If that's convenient, let's do that. That's convenient. If that's going to gratify, let's do that. And, and, And we're just drifting on the sea every day of convenience and no longer ordering our day so that prayer is an active part of it. But you have to understand, loved ones, that prayer has never been... A convenient pastime for Christians. You read through scripture. You read through the book of Acts. It wasn't a convenient pastime when the people gathered for prayer. No, they prayed because they were in living relationship with Jesus Christ. It takes time to get on your knees. It takes time to order your thoughts. Especially when you have so many things pinging off your phone. Maybe turn the phone off. I don't know. It takes time to make time for prayer with other members. Uh, It takes time to dedicate time in the early morning or in the evening when you have time of solitude. Hopefully you can find it in your house. Maybe even have a prayer room where you can schedule your daily time of prayer. Uh, Daniel did. Daniel, three times a day, he scheduled that time of prayer. He ordered his day. I think Daniel was a pretty busy guy become the problem of our age that we're so driven by convenience and the gratification of the flesh that the things of God just become so diminished and prayer is one of those but this has been a problem for Christ church for a long time even the disciples <laughs> disciples were inconvenienced um, in by prayer uh, even to the almost the last hour of Jesus life on earth Jesus says, as he was about to carry the burdens of the world in the Garden of Gethsemane, and drip drops of blood from his face, he, he says to his disciples, just please pray. Please pray that you don't fall into temptation. And the cares of the world and the, the flesh is weak, and the disciples fell asleep. Even though the Savior of the world is asking them to pray, they, they slept. <laughs> He says, can't you stay awake just one hour for me? If Peter had stayed awake and prayed, he may not have fallen into temptation to deny his Savior. The devil was on the loose that night. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And when the flesh is weak, what is needed is more prayer, not less. When the flesh is weak, more prayer is needed, not less. And sometimes that might be inconvenient. But if you were to just reflect, just briefly, and we're going to almost close with this, but if you were to reflect on the life of Jesus, it's very interesting that Jesus was never inconvenienced by prayer. He was tired because he was a man. He worked hard during the day because he worked hard. But he was never inconvenienced by prayer. He actually started his ministry by praying and fasting for 40 days. That's quite inconvenient for the average person. Jesus would lose nights of sleep so that he could be praying to his father. Jesus prayed in the garden with such intensity that it seemed like, or it was, drops of blood coming out of his forehead. Jesus was a man of prayer, and prayer led him to the cross. 
loved ones, to bear the burden of our slothfulness, to bear the burdens of our divided hearts, to bear the burdens of our lack of faith, our unconfessed sin, to bear the burden of all that curse that is meant for us, but he took it so that we could take his righteousness, his active obedience, his love, and even on the cross, Jesus was in prayer for those around him and to his own father. He would never saw it as an inconvenience. It was his lifeline to the father. And not only that, I think what we get from the life of Jesus and from the early church is the sense that we, we may not see it, but we should. That prayer is not only a matter of, you know, is it convenient or not, it's a matter of urgency. I hope the church understands this. I think John Piper, some of you know that author, helped me understand that he, he calls prayer wartime communication with the Almighty. Prayer is like wartime communication with the Almighty. You know, if a commander needs to connect with his base for some more assistance, for more, more artillery or whatever the case may, see, may be, and he's calling base from the front lines, he's not receiving this, this command. He's not going to be picking up his phone and scrolling through Facebook or that's kind of aged, Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. Oh, that's nice. Oh, oh, oh. No, he's going to get on that phone and say, we, we need help, and if you don't help us, things are going to go really bad here quickly. It's wartime communication, and I think we need to understand that we're in that war. It doesn't matter how passive and how much of a lure there is in this life to think that everything is just fine. We're just going to navigate in the sea of, or sea of convenience, gratify the desires of our flesh, and just float until we get into eternity. That's not the Christian life. We're not on, as Reverend Stan, my former pastor, used to say, we're not on the collector's lane to heaven, just, just coasting along. It's wartime out there. We need to be in active communication because we're at war. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, you know, we are at war. And our, and our battle is not against flesh and blood. But our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We are fighting a spiritual battle in our homes, in our church, in our workplaces, in our communities. And our wartime communication is necessary. And you can be guaranteed that when you call the base every single time, base will hear as you call in faith. This is why we pray. Satan has done a pretty good job, and he continues to do a pretty good job of trapping the church, of keeping us from prayer, of making us believe that it's not that important. But God's people, loved ones, are to be a spirit-filled people on their knees. We are utterly dependent upon his mercy. We want to see his purposes done in our lives. And thank him for that. We have particular needs, and some of them are urgent, that we need prayer for. And we long to see the gospel not take, only take deeper roots in our own lives, but in the lives of our family members, and in the lives of, of others in the church community, and then in the community around us. We want to see the gospel take wings and fly. So we pray. And we address those hindrances to prayer. And we call them out. So there's nothing stopping us from active, 
clear, constant, faithful communication with the Almighty, who has, by the blood of Christ, opens heaven's door for us, allowed us into the throne room to receive, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4, grace and mercy in our time of need. And remember, as I do, it's a simple thing that I remember when I come to prayer, that God is worthy. He's so worthy of our prayers. And we are in need. Desperately in need. Amen.